right. I love having my own walk-up music. That is so cool. I've always wanted that. Thank you, Jeremy. Hey, guys, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Pastor Gabe said it very well, but oh my gosh, I, I cannot even tell you how happy I am to see real faces out there. Those of you who know, here's, here's what my audience has been. See the smiley face? That's Fred. Any of my movie fans out there know the significance of Fred? If you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. You'll just have to ask somebody else later. But that's, that's been who I've been preaching to the last uh, way too long. And it's been, it's been difficult to not see your faces and to not know that I can see the Word of God making a difference in your lives. I can see those, those little head nods and those little gestures that you make that just let me know this is something that's meaningful to you. And that's been missing for me. And it's been difficult. The other thing that's been difficult is navigating everything that's going on in the world in a meaningful way. And what I mean by that is some churches are very much called, it's part of their vision and mission to be socially active or to be politically active. Many, many churches, that's their calling from God is to be that way. There are some churches who their calling is simply to be a teaching church. There are some that are called, every church is called differently. At least that's what you would hope, that every pastor has a leading from the Lord, and that's what they're trying to fulfill every single day. I have never felt, now I'm very politically oriented, I'm very passionate about those things, but I've never felt like the Lord has given me freedom or calling to bring that into this church. I felt like his calling to me was to preach the word of God to teach the Word of God straight from the Bible, to make it come alive, because through that, in combination with the Holy Spirit, we can then make our own decisions, Spirit-led, on how we are to live our lives. So I've never brought that element into our church, and that's not going to change. That's not who we are. However, I realize that there's a lot going on. There's a lot happening in our world right now that I feel like I would be doing a disservice to my congregation if I did not at least address it. And when I talk about things like this, I tend to get very, very passionate. And so what I did is I wrote down a letter. <laughs> and I'm going to read it. Because if I were just to speak, I've already taken five minutes of my time just speaking off the cuff to you guys I want to stay focused, and I want to read this letter that I have. It doesn't address every issue ever, but I hope that it conveys my heart, okay? So here we go. There's been a lot going on since we gathered last. COVID-19 and all of its surrounding issues has brought out both the best and the worst in some of us. Nerves have become raw. We see people lashing out at those who they deem to be the enemy, and as your pastors, Gabe and I have sought the Holy Spirit daily, moment to moment, on how to navigate this the way that the Lord would have us navigate this, not as individuals, but as pastors of this church. And that's an important distinction to make because in a congregation like ours, there are people on both ends of the spectrum. There are people who are angry that we didn't just continue to meet 
and not ever take a time off. There are people who are kind of disturbed that we're even meeting now at all. Some people think it's way too early. Some people think it's way too late. Some people insist on wearing masks. Some people think masks are a farce, and you shouldn't do that. We have everybody in between, and that's important for us to know because despite my personal feelings on this, I need to understand that we have a congregation of people all over, and our focus needs to be on Jesus and not on what the news says or whatever social issue is going on at the time. If we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that's going to keep us on the path. And one of the biggest mistakes we can make as individuals is to assume that everyone else thinks and believes the same that we do. And that if they don't, it's somehow our job to point out their error. We're often blind to our biases. And we see the world around us through these biases. We all do. We have this windshield or this lens that we see the world from. And that lens was formed on how we were brought up, where we live the experiences that we've had. And not all biases are bad. A bias towards loving the Lord Jesus is good. I think we could all agree on that. A bias towards assuming the best in people is good. A predisposition to loving our neighbor in spite of our differences is good. A bias towards helping those in need is good. And a righteous anger when we see evil and injustice in the world is good. Those things are good. And I personally admit that I have biases that I'm completely blind to. Some of them I see, some of them I acknowledge and I know, but even the ones I acknowledge, I can't understand the depth of those things that I'm blind to. I grew up in a white, suburban, middle-class family. I was not exposed to the things that we see around the world. My parents still married after 60 years. I never one day went without the things that I needed, never once. And until I was an adult, I had never personally witnessed racism. Until I was an adult, I never personally witnessed poverty. And even now that I have, I still can't understand the depth of those issues or how it would feel to be in that situation. When I do encounter those things, it's through a lens that was formed by my upbringing. It's virtually impossible for me to see life as those people see it. And when I say those people, I mean whatever you're going through. Medical issues, racial issues, economic issues. It's almost impossible for us to truly see how someone else is living their life. Unless we sit down and have a talk with them. But I believe that every one of us has those biases and it makes us difficult It makes it difficult to put ourselves in the shoes of other people. We always throw that statement out, walk a mile in their shoes. You can walk a mile in their shoes, but guess what? At the end of the mile, you get to put on your own shoes. And that's something that's hard for us to remember. This is why we have to get our guidance from the word of God. The only thing that's unchanging, I know for sure that the cure for what ails this planet is found in the teaching of Jesus Christ. In every aspect of our lives. The Bible is one source that you don't have to question the motive of. I love my God. I love my country. I love my family. I love you, my church family. I love serving the Lord, and I'll bet that you all do too. I bet we can agree on that. 
So then why does that outpouring of love not always manifest itself in a loving way? Especially when we get behind a keyboard. Our biases can easily be manipulated by pride, emotion, and ultimately by the devil. So let's all promise to do the best that we can do as human beings with the biases and the lenses that we see life through to make sure that what we do reflects our calling as a follower of Christ. Remember that of all the laws Jesus was, that, that God gave, all of the laws that God gave, Jesus was asked, remember what the greatest commandment is. And what did he say? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. He didn't go into all the other things. He just said, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. If we start with that foundation and that's the lens we see the world through, we're going to be okay. And then the last part, everything we do, everything we say, everything we post should be able to pass that test. Jesus taught us even more importantly and more difficult than that. He said, it's what's in your heart that matters. So the things that you say, they reflect what's in your heart or are you just saying the words? You know, in 1 John 4.20, he says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. And whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen cannot possibly love God. I want you to think about those things the next time that we go to judge or look down on somebody, regardless of what the reason is. And if your thoughts and actions aren't passing the test, we need to repent. I need to repent. And continue to renew our minds to reflect that of our Lord and Savior. So with that, I think that the best way to do that is to know what the Word of God says about situations like this, about how to live our lives. And that's why we teach the way we teach. I want us to know the word of God so that we can spot a counterfeit and that we can live it in our lives. Does that make sense? All right, guys. Hey, I've got a lot to do, and as a result of all this stuff, we've, we've been forced to keep our services really, really tight so that we can get one group out and sterilize all the chairs. We have to sterilize all the chairs and then bring another group in. With that, I need to get going. So we got about... About 20 minutes here. I need to get going. We're going to get into, this is Treasar. That's our series that's been going. I hope you guys have been enjoying it at home. Um, it's about the 12. And when you say the 12, people's minds immediately go to the 12 apostles. This, these are 12 minor prophets. And just to catch you up, whether you're at home or wherever you are, catch the back, the back, the back issues. Catch the back uh, messages online. And get yourself caught up because the 12, the minor prophets, more than anything, they have this laser-focused teaching, laser-focused word from God on social issues. They're more than any other focused on social issues and how appropriate for a day like today when we're going through all these things. We started out in Obadiah and then went to Joel, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah. This week, we're going to talk about the prophet Nahum. Nahum is probably, I would say, I'd venture to say the most obscure of all the minor prophets. Maybe the most obscure book in the whole Bible. But here's the, here's the version. I want to share with you what I would call the Cliff's Notes version, right? Remember Cliff's Notes from high school? 
of the book of Nahum, and it reads like this. When you see your enemies prospering at your expense, you'll be tempted to wonder if you're following the right God. God's promises are not dependent on our ability to understand the why of our situation, but if we hold firm to him alone, we have no need to fight our own battles. He has already won them for us. That's what I would call the Cliff's Notes version, but let's get into it and really see what Nahum has to say, okay? All right, so Nahum, first of all, the book of Nahum could really be called Jonah Part 2. Remember we talked about Jonah a while ago? This could really be called Jonah Part 2 because it picks up where Jonah left off and expands on then what happens there. So remember this, so Jonah was, he prophesied to Nineveh 100 years before Nahum. And Anne corrected me, it's Nahum, I know. But I'm going to say it both ways, Nahum and Nahum. I'm going to say it both. But if you remember when, when Jonah taught, Jonah's prophecy, again, a hundred years prior to this, was just five words. Remember, he went all that way, went through all these trials, got into Nineveh, and he had a five-word prophecy, and it said this, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was it. Mic drop, he walked away. And then, of course, we know everything that happened, but the result of that, just those five words, that declaration that he made, the result was Nineveh, as a, as a city and then as the nation, Assyria, they repented, like, immediately. The greatest probably single evangelism event in the world, they immediately repented and walked away from their ways. And that's amazing the Assyrian king Shalmaneser, Shalmaneser III, repented of all of his ways and immediately said, we need, to, we need to pray, we need to mourn, we need to do all these things to show that it's real. And it was real, I believe, at the time. And God believed it was real. And God had mercy on them. So that whole message is about God's mercy. Remember Jonah 3.10, when God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So did he require a whole bunch of steps and all sorts of things to give this mercy to the Ninevites? Or was it simply just they said, you know what? We've been wrong. We can't live our lives like this. We should turn away from those ways. And God showed mercy on them, and he relented. So the whole idea, that's 100% mercy of God on the Ninevites who had every reason to just be crushed by God. But he had mercy on them. But that was 10 kings and 100 years ago for the city of Nineveh, for the the nation of Assyria. Remember, Nineveh is the capital, Assyria is the, the nation. But we'll talk specifically about the Ninevites because that's the hub. That is Sin City. That's known as, like, this is the the center of that right there. They had started to, in that 10 kings in 100 years, they had started to go back to their old ways. Okay, they were, their old ways and then some, I'll say. They had completely forgotten. So now, as we shift towards the book of Nahum, what we see is the judgment of God coming upon those who mock the gift of God's mercy. We're going to talk about how mercy without judgment is meaningless. 
We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But let's get into the book of Nahum. We know if we go to the very first scripture in Nahum, which is Nahum 1.1, we've got that on screen. He was a Judean prophet from the town of Elkosh, right? The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. When it says Elkoshite, that's, he's an, like we're Denverites or whatever we are, ites. That's where he's from, Elkosh. That's all we know. We don't even really know for sure where Elkosh was other than that it was in Judah. When you see the oracle, oracle is a, it's, at its root, it's a Hebrew word that means burden. It means he was burdened to give this word. It wasn't a choice. He had a burden that he had to give, and God gave it to him. That's why it starts out, the oracle of Nineveh. We don't know anything more about Nahum. We don't know anything more about Elkosh. Everything else about this, when we're looking at the historical background, we glean from other scriptures and timelines of who was king and the things that happened and the things he refers to. So from that, we can kind of infer Nahum lived in the mid-7th century B.C., primarily during the reign of Judean king Manasseh. Okay, Manasseh now was an evil king. Manasseh, not a good guy. And Judea had had their ups and downs. It seems like they'd have a good king, bad king, good king, bad king. And it was just a roller coaster ride that they went on. Manasseh was an evil king. Listen to this from 2 Kings 21.6. He made his son pass through the fire. This is Manasseh making his own son walk into the fire. He practiced witchcraft and used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And there's so much more. You can read 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles if you just want to hear more background on what Manasseh did. Later on, another message for another day, Manasseh actually repents from an Assyrian prison, but not before so much damage was done. Now, let's talk about Nineveh specifically. Nineveh was the capital, as I said, of Assyria, which was kind of to the north and east of of Israel and of Judah. A constant thorn in the side, basically the bully in the neighborhood. Assyria always was. Always. They would go through times of kind of peace and up and down, but for the most part, they were just known as the bully in the neighborhood. Nineveh, by the way, is in modern-day Iraq, Okay, specifically, Nineveh is where the, the town of Mosul is, if you've heard of Mosul from the news. That's where it is. It was the largest city in the world for over 100 years, the largest city in the world. Remember when Jonah was talking about it, he said it was a three-day walk just to go around the perimeter. That's a big city, especially for those days. It had walls 100 feet high, and it had a moat surrounding it that was 150 feet wide. Okay, that gave them a considerable degree of protection, helped defend them against countless attacks from enemies over the, over the centuries, really. In fact, I think we have an image of what, it's just a painting of what they suspect ancient Nineveh looked like. That's quite a place. See the big moat that goes all the way around the city, the big giant walls? You would think you're pretty safe living there. And that's no different. They did. The people, the Ninevites who lived there, they considered themselves impregnable. They were said to have, in fact, this is from historical sources, they had enough food, water, supplies, everything inside the city to withstand a hundred-year siege. If you know anything about ancient battles, if you couldn't attack directly, you would just surround. You would just surround and wait them out. And eventually they would starve and they would have to come out. 
So a hundred year siege has said that they had enough. You could see why they would think they were completely invulnerable, that there was nothing anyone could do. And even after the Assyrians were dealt a blow, remember when they went in and they attacked Israel and then they traveled south to Judah and they were stopped literally by an angel at the gates of Jerusalem. Remember that from a couple messages ago? If not, you can go back and catch it. Awesome story. That was from Micah, by the way. Even when that happened, they went back kind of tail between their legs, but they brought a lot of plunder with them. They brought a lot of, a lot of slaves, a lot of people, a lot of plunder with them, even though they went back. And they continued to just be a bully and to be a bad neighbor. Some people just never learn. The sins of Nineveh now, if we go into this, the sins of Nineveh are too many to list, really. We could go in idolatry, violence, arrogance. But here's the big one. They had just laid hands on God's chosen people. God's not going to stand for that. They were stopped on the doorstep of Jerusalem, but they had, again, they had captured farmers. They had done a lot of damage. Now, bless you. Now, Judah had known, they knew, and they understood God's covenant with his people. They knew they were the chosen people. They knew that God was going to protect them. They knew this, and they continued to forget it from time to time and had to be reminded of it. They also knew that the Messiah was going to come from among them. So they knew that this story has a good ending. If the Messiah is going to come from among our people, it probably turns out well for us, right? You would think that. So why were they continually used as a punching bag by their enemies? Over and over, different, the Moabites, everybody all around, everybody was constantly using Judah as their punching bag. And then when that wasn't happening, Judah then was beaten up on their neighbors and not being a good, a good neighbor either. They had tried, this is Judah themselves, they had tried to follow the law of Moses. They had tried and worship properly. Some did it better than others. In general, as a nation, they didn't do it so good. But here's a question. Have you ever wondered why, when you look around, some other people specifically who we would call maybe those antagonistic to us, I'll use the term enemies, but not our friends, and you watch them prosper more than you? Those who don't live their lives the right way, those who maybe don't follow Jesus at all, and you see them prospering, self-promoters, bullies. My history prior to ministry was all about that. Keep your nose down, just do the best job that you can, and you watch all these people rise above you. And you wonder, like, am I doing it the right way? My, my humility and just my desire to do things the right way and to be a good person and to do it the right way. And here's these people who are laughing at that, and they're rising above me. Do you ever wonder about that? You ever wonder, at some point, I think all of us wonder, like, why do I try so hard to play by the rules? Whether it's the rules of, of, of law or common law in our nation, human laws, or whether it's the laws of God. Why do I try so hard to do the right thing when I see these people who have no concept of what that is and they're prospering more than, more than me? This is what Judah was going through. They were trying to hang on 
to the word of God, to the laws of Moses, to do the right thing, but they continued to see themselves get conquered, drug around, beat up, and they saw their neighbors, the Assyrians, specifically in Nineveh, prospering like crazy. Now, you know, Judah went through ups and downs. They had great times of prosperity for sure, but it didn't last. It was just up and down, and it seemed to be this roller coaster ride of kings. But it started to weaken their resolve to walk the right path. They started to just get tired. We're trying to do the right thing, and we keep getting beat up. We try to do the right thing, and then we have an evil king come in who, why did God allow an evil king to come in? And things went down, down the tubes. Then we get a good king, and then just when we get used to that, it goes down the other way again. It was just a time when their resolve was weakening, and they were wondering if it was all worth it. This is the setting. So God, through the prophet Nahum, reminds those in Judah that judgment will await those who are guilty. He will fight your battles. Nahum 1 verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. That does not sound like a warm and fuzzy, cuddly God. That is an avenging and a wrathful God. What this really means, though, is take heart. I know what you're going through, but trust me, God's got your back. God's got your back. Nahum 1.3, we have that on screen too. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. God is great and mighty, and he will absolutely not leave the guilty unpunished. Absolutely not. Which, by the way, this totally recalls the words of God to Moses. If you go all the way back to Exodus 34, 6, 7, let me read this to you and listen to how it actually dovetails into what Nahum just said. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, in front of Moses, and, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers and the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. God is slow to anger. He is gracious. He is merciful. But there is a time when judgment and wrath does have to be a part of the equation. So after, after reminding the people of what God's wrath can look like, read Nahum. It's only three chapters. Read that through. He reminds them of this. So he goes out and he lists out all the ways that God can bring wrath. But then he says this, Nahum 1.7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. In other words, God will not forget your faithfulness. He will not forget. He knows. Nahum continues then. It goes on for the next two chapters, basically, talking about God's judgment on Nineveh. All the different ways that God's going to judge. Nahum 1.14. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Yike. God says that to you, that's going to get your attention, right? Now, after some 
continued graphic descriptions of what God's wrath is going to look like. Nineveh's complete, absolute destruction, final destruction is foretold. All of chapter 3 is about this. Nahum 3.5, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. In other words, those who make a mockery of the gift of God's grace will themselves be made a mockery of. God's going to do that. We don't have to take that into our own hands. So, the destruction is going to be absolutely final, by the way. Remember I showed you the picture of Nineveh? Here's a similar painting on what the destruction of Nineveh is going to look like. Or more importantly, what it did look like because this happened. Nineveh is going down, and it's going down in a big way. Nahum 3, 1 to 12, or 11 to 12, says, You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they will fall into the eater's mouth. You know, all these fortifications you think are reliable, as soon as they're shaken, it's just going to crumble. So it's following, following this destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. Now, only 30 years after Nahum says this, the Babylonians come in and crush him. Nebuchadnezzar in 612 B.C. Nineveh disappears from history. You never hear about Nineveh again for a long time until this great wall, this fortress city that we've seen, this massive city laid beneath the sand in the Arabian desert until the 1850s when it was discovered again. Let me show you a picture of this, just a partial picture when they found and started excavating Nineveh. There's actually much more than this that was excavated, but that's actually the city of Nineveh, laid beneath the sands, and they found it and they excavated it. You can Google that. There's a million images. And it looked like that, and the work continued until 2015, and in 2015, remember this little group called ISIS came into Mosul, and this is what they did. They did their best to destroy all of it. Thankfully, they didn't get all of it. There's still some left. But now, okay, now this is the point when all the minor prophets we've talked about so far, this is the point where the prophet would say, but, I know there's all this judgment. I know there's all this this wrath, but God is good, and God will restore, and God is... That doesn't happen here. This is not how this one ends. This book is about the flip side of God's mercy. Because, yes, somebody out there? God's judgment is always right, and it's always righteous. Always, always right, always righteous. And should he choose to grant mercy for a time, he will not be mocked. And he will not forget those who flaunt his mercy and the gift that they have been given. Mercy and judgment are inseparable parts of God's character. Without mercy, judgment doesn't mean anything. And without judgment, mercy doesn't mean anything. Without that reality of justice and judgment, that gift has so little value. 
And to appreciate the depth of God's mercy in the absence of pain and suffering would be virtually impossible. Like I talked about those biases. If you've never seen it, you would have no idea what a gift mercy is. If you had never seen judgment or pain or suffering, you would have no idea what a great gift mercy is. And to be insulated from that pain and suffering that Jesus took on the cross to pay that price for you also removes you from the ability to experience the magnitude of that gift. It just does. And if you don't understand or appreciate that gift, it's easy to be tempted into thinking you don't really need it. You can somehow live your life without it. And that, church, is when the devil's got you. That's when he's got you. Like the Judeans, sometimes we see those who are thumbing their nose at at the right path, at God, at religion, at the way that we live our lives, at our values. We see them doing that and prospering often at our expense. And also, like them, you could be tempted into wondering, is it really worth it? So the point of all this, when we begin to tire of doing what is right, we give the enemy a foothold. We give the enemy a foothold. When we say phrases, and God gave me this image, I hope it translates to you. When we say phrases like, it's not fair, or when we say things like, they have no right, why them and not me? Where's mine? They got theirs. When we do that, it's like sending up a signal flare for Satan to see. Because when that happens, you make yourself a target. And not only that, but you have given him the ammunition that he needs to attack you. You have given him the very thing that's on your heart, and now he's going to attack you. And he's going to attack your friends, and he's going to create divisiveness and problems based on the ammunition you gave him. Let's not do that. I want to leave you with this exhortation from the Apostle Paul as we wrap up here. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. That points to the fact that there will be times when we are just tired of doing the right thing. That points to the fact that there will be injustice. There will be things that are not fair. But if we persevere and we hold true to the words of God... He will fight our battles. We don't need to fight our own battles because only God can do that without sin. As soon as we start trying to fight our own battles, the enemy's going to be in there. And we're going to have a hard time staying on the right path. So would you pray with me? Father God, we just thank you so much for the gift of grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. Lord, we repent, I repent, God, of every time that I have taken that gift of mercy for granted because I've been so insulated by your grace and mercy from that judgment, God, sometimes I don't see it for what it is. But, Lord, I thank you here and now. I thank you for your mercy and your grace and your provision and your goodness in my life. I don't want to experience a life without that, and thankfully I don't have to. Father, we praise you and we love you in this place. And everyone said, amen, amen. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and head on up. If you have your communion supplies,
Let's take communion together. <coughs> and if you don't have your communion supplies, they're on the table back there. You can still grab some if you need to. Part of acknowledging the gift of mercy and grace that Jesus died to give for you as partaking in that body. When we partake in the body of Christ, we are saying, yes, I align myself with that gift that you gave. I understand the pain that you went through, the brokenness to give that gift to me. And I acknowledge that gift. If that's you, take the bread. And then the blood of Christ is, of course, the blood of the new covenant. God has always had covenants with his people. I will be their God and I will not forget them. Christ brings a better covenant. The new covenant of Christ. He is our God. But we have the Holy Spirit and we have a home next to him in heaven. And if you align with the teachings of Christ and his sacrifice for you, then take the covenant. Father, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, this is so cool how God works because last week, The worship team did a couple songs at the end that were perfect for Pastor Bob's message. Uh, And the songs were planned like weeks before. This weekend I picked the songs and I picked the song because I've always wanted to do it and I like it, but Pastor Bob was like, oh, that just goes perfect with what I want to say. That Jesus is our champion. He fights for us. Jesus, our King.